Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com, including our new 21-22 Winter Buyer's Guide. Physical copies have been shipping out to Blister members for a couple of weeks now, and the digital version is now live for everyone to see, too. Okay, sealant-based tubeless systems are very much the norm on modern mountain bikes, and while they work a whole lot better than they used to, there's always room for improvement. Stan's No Tubes effectively invented tubeless systems as we know them today, so we sat down with their president, Mike Bush, to talk about the early days of tubeless development and how we got where we are today, why we still use rim tape instead of molded rim strips, the nitty-gritty of how sealant works and the trade-offs that go into its design, rim profiles, tire inserts, and a whole lot more. Mike has spent more time thinking about tubeless bike tires than just about anybody else, and his conversation is full of a ton of great information, so let's get right into it. Well, Mike, great to chat with you, and thanks for coming on. How are you today, and where are you today? Good, good. Uh, yeah, it's great to be on. I listen to you guys on a regular basis, so it's uh, fun to join in. Um, I am sitting in State College, Pennsylvania. It is sunny but chilly out there, uh, but doing well. Yeah, thanks. Good deal. Yeah, so we're here today to talk about stands and all things tubeless mountain bike tires, so I think this will be a pretty interesting one. To fire it off, stands frankly, led the way in developing tubeless systems as we know them with rim tape and sealant and all that. How did that original concept come to be? And what was the thinking about going that route as opposed to the uh, UST systems that were already on the market when Stance first launched? Sure, sure. So I think it all started around the year 2000 or so. We often refer to 2001 as our beginning, but Stan was already at work on uh, sort of this this approach and this method in, in 2000. And basically, you know, UST was new to the market, I think maybe in 99-ish. And um, he'd just gotten a new bike and it did not have UST wheels and tires. So he was looking at it thinking, well, I'd, I'd like to try this tubeless thing, but I've already got these new wheels and new bike and everything. And, um, you know, what better way than to try and convert what you already have, basically. Uh, the, the early UST system for Mavic was essentially a closed system for those don't remember it, but um, there was there was one wheel and there were two tires and <laughs> you kind of liked them or you didn't. And they were a bit on the heavier side. You know, it's, it's first iteration product uh, for the public. And um, obviously there's room for improvement on those. So Stan's approach at the time was to take the existing wheels he had, uh, seal the spoke bed airtight with, um, at that time we used two different types of tape to accomplish that. And then to take the standard tires that had come with the bike, uh, just a non-tubeless tire, obviously, and um, find something that could seal the casing airtight. And so it started sort of the process of working through the various iterations of liquid latex and um, and so on to, to make that happen. And then as he started to stumble across what was working better than others, um, he was talking about it online on some old forums of the day and things of that nature. And everybody was saying, well, I can't get those things here why don't you just sell me some? And that was sort of the beginning of uh, the business side of things. It, it did not set out originally to be a, a business builder on tubeless, but stand by nature is a very you know, kind of mechanically inclined, hands-on um, inventor and uh, just sort of led down that path. You're saying that he was kind of putting forth the recipes he was producing for sealant on the internet, just trying to say, hey, if you guys want to try this, go for it. And then people were responding to that going, well, actually – how about I just buy the pre-mixed product rather? Okay. Yeah. So the earliest days, we didn't even sell a pre-mixed. It was, here's some 
liquid latex. Here's what you want to mix it with. And it kind of just went from there. I started using stamps pretty early, but I think I missed out on that particular era of it. I got in just a touch after that then. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, things have certainly evolved and improved a bit since then. Well, yeah, on the subject of UST, to stick with that for another minute, though, there are a lot of tubeless systems out there now that are at least conceptually pretty similar to stands, and UST has gone away. Why do you think the stands approach has pretty conclusively won out at this point? Well, UST is still out there in some sense. We just don't think of it the same way, maybe. So in developing the the, the sealing method at the time with two types of tape and the, the liquid being introduced, you know, it's the first time that a, a liquid sealant was used to try and seal the, the casing airtight, and not just as like a puncture repair inside of a tube. Um, we started to look at details of the rims, you know, some rims converted better than others. And what was it about that particular model and, and shape on the inside of the rim and so on? And certain tires worked better than others. And it just kind of, you know, continued to evolve down this path of, um, you know, what will work the best in what situation. We were very cross-country focused. And I would say at the end of the day, what, what kind of went out was, UST wheels were difficult to assemble, uh, especially in in mass for the OEM side of the business. You know, all the bike brands and so on didn't want to uh, alter their assembly methods. Um, back to that conversion approach, a lot of people already had some really nice wheels. Uh, is there a way to utilize what we already have without buying new wheels? And then um, you know, UST of the day was was a heavier setup, uh, both in tire and in wheel. Uh, was not as serviceable, whether at the shop uh, level or at the home user level. And um, yeah, I think in the end, it was a matter of, you know, weight drives a lot of things and convenience and serviceability are, are really important to people. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And I was going to touch on the wheel assembly thing here too. I was kind of early mid 2000s, I was working in a shop and racing DH and uh, Mavic 823s were kind of the rim of choice largely at that era but uh dealing with the inserts for those people who aren't familiar instead of having holes drilled all the way through the rim to install the nipples from the inside of the wheel basically they had a set of threaded inserts on the inner wall of the rim that you dropped the nipple into threaded that insert into the rim and then built the wheel more or less as normal from there and yeah, I mean, it's heavy. It's a more complicated, expensive thing. You've got a bunch more parts and all these new threads and stuff that you're introducing. And it just takes a lot longer to build the wheels, too. It's quite a bit more work. So that was certainly a significant disadvantage of UST. But on the flip side, the thing, one thing that was nice about it was that you then didn't have to deal with sealing off the inside of the wheel at all because the inner rim wall was just solid. And... So I wanted to talk a little bit about the various ways that that's been approached for converting more conventional wheels, including the sort of tape that we're all used to these days. Um, the tape, you know, by and large works well. It's light. It's pretty inexpensive. So there's some clear advantages to that solution. But at the same time, it can be a little finicky to install. You have to be pretty careful to clean off the rim well and um, take some real care to smooth the tape out nicely as you're installing it and also it is susceptible to being damaged by tire levers and stuff like that so it's i wouldn't say it's a perfect solution it's a pretty good one and so one of the things that i wanted to ask on that note 
was earlier in your history, stands used to offer these molded rubber rim strips in place of the rim tape. And it's been a long time since I used those. Obviously, they've been a discontinued product for quite some time now. But I'm curious why you moved away from that approach. And if you think there's sort of possibility to figure out a better version of those somewhere down the line. Sure, sure. Yeah. So go back a little ways here too. So we're, we're looking, you know, UST of the day, it, the tires had a much larger uh, bead profile. So if you were to cut the, the tire across its cross section, you would see more of a squared profile around the bead and a lot of rubber uh, around the, the cords of the bead that um, were intended to lock in and seal against the rim and so on. And uh, if you think about like, if you were to take your hand and kind of make a C shape, uh, the, your your thumb would form the bead seat of the rim, and uh, you know the sidewall would be kind of straight up along your your fingers. Hard to visualize, maybe, but picture the bead sitting in that space. <laughs> Stick with me, and uh, in a non-UST or you know pre-tubeless ready world, that bead had a lot of room to move around. Um, so we refer to that as bead float, basically. So picture that bead floating in that kind of open space and moving. So you're talking about the the height of the rim wall below the bead hook on the on rims of that. Right. Era. Okay. Right. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So that bead seat was not very defined at the time. We didn't see flat bead seats pre UST. You didn't have a, a potentially a bead seat with a small bump on it or anything that was intended to retain the the tire bead. The tube did all of that for you. So now you've got this bead that can kind of float around in space and uh, you know, people would be asked where where does that bead sit? Well, it's it's down contacting the rim, and that wasn't the truth because based on the size of the rims, the size of the tires, once inflated, that bead came off of uh, or was no longer in contact with the bottom surface of the rim. So we needed to fill that space to create an airtight seal. So if you look at our yellow tape, it's about five and a half thousandths thick. That's how we seal a spoke bed now. That's because the bead seats are defined and in the right position. But a rubber rim strip was up to 60,000 thick uh, in different varieties through the years. We made a number of different models and sizes and widths, uh, and that was to accommodate the sidewall height of the rim, the size of the bead on the tires typical to that application, and then how much gap we needed to fill or that bead float space that we needed to occupy. So <laughs> kind of long story short there, we were just filling things up to make them fit tighter, basically. So your, your rims and tires of today are sized better. Uh, nothing's perfect, but they are sized better and, and uh, more appropriate for the application. And uh, the tape does, like you say, a, a good job of sealing the spoke bed airtight. Uh, it's a smooth surface so that the beads can glide into position nicely during inflation. It is relatively strong, um, easy to maintain and repair or replace when necessary. But uh, is it perfect? No. Like you mentioned, it can be maybe finicky to install on certain shapes. Uh, some some tapes are more compliant than others. We're not the only people producing that type of product. Uh, so could we do a different style strip? Certainly. Is Does it need to be thick and of that kind of rubber nature that it was in the past? No. No, that's not where tires and rims are today. Um, so you look at something maybe like the Bontrager system that uses more of a semi-rigid plastic, if you will, that snaps into place as one way to go about it. Um, you know, there are certainly other ways to to tackle the problem that still allow you to access the spoke nipples when necessary and, and so on and so forth. But uh, tape is compliant. It's light. It's inexpensive. 
it's a, like I say, pretty good approach to the problem. Yeah, that Bondager strip was the thing I was actually going to bring up. I haven't got a ton of experience with them, but in the limited amount I have, I've found those to be pretty slick. Uh, the obvious downside is that they are fairly specific to the given rim profile, so they have to be molded to a given rim rather than being a fairly flexible solution that would work on a generic rim to sort of use that terming. They are super easy to install and in the bit of time I have on them do work really well. So those are those are pretty cool. I'm just yeah, I guess what I was part of what I wanted to get at was do you think that we'll see more things along that line going forward? It would obviously require some more coordination with wheel manufacturers, but you know, stance makes wheels. So it's certainly not too hard to imagine you guys doing that for your own rims at least. Yeah, when it's within your own uh, your own system, it's it's certainly easier and, and- you know, the bond trigger solution isn't, they don't attempt to sell that for other companies' wheels. Uh, there's such a variety, whether in diameter or width or depth of the drop channel. I mean, we're very particular about our rim shapes and how everything has to fit, mount and inflate, that uh, we're controlling very, very tight tolerances there that that we don't see on some of the other products. Kind of moving on from the rim sealing part of it and getting into sealant itself, I guess the first thing I want to ask is just in relatively general terms how does the liquid sealant actually work it sort of seems a little bit like magic on some level you've got conceptually you know you've got basically a liquid latex that is meant to do the sealing and then there's some particulates mixed in as i understand it to sort of catch and plug up small holes as they try to escape through the tire and then some other things to help stop it from drying out or freezing and what have you but the thing that i've never fully gotten my head around, I guess, is how does the liquid latex actually plug stuff up and not just get blown through whatever tiny microscopic holes might exist in the tire, to say nothing of a properly large cut that you might introduce to it? Uh, how, how do you actually have something that is liquid and flows where it needs to go, but then still seals those sorts of things? Well, you were right. It's magic. It's magic, basically. <laughs> we were accused of uh, all kinds of tricks and things in the early days of, of doing puncture demonstrations at you know Mount Snow National and other places like that, that. That's not real. It's fake. You're not using a real nail to puncture, and no, it's it's real. But um, uh, essentially, you know, we use. If you're familiar with our product, it's thin, it's milky in consistency, and so on. It is a natural latex that we use, and we do have a you know our proprietary blend of of additives and particulate, basically. And um, you know, as you're going down the trail, that liquid is kind of flowing around the tire. It doesn't cause balance issues or anything of that nature, but it continues to flow and uh, carries with it that particulate and so on. As the uh, puncture occurs and the sealant can flow to it, we can get there very quickly being you know, so thin in nature. Uh, you've got these long chain kind of uh, polymers in the sealant that Basically, you think of like tangled spaghetti. They're all just kind of flowing together. And then as they approach a hole, the the air pressure is applying that force and pushing it out through the hole. They kind of straighten out and and so on and, and essentially grasp onto the fabric. So, so the nylon portion of the casing, typically, uh, you've got all these little fibers and so on in there. And, and this uh, natural latex sort of uh, attaches itself to that area, brings with it the particulate to help fill in the gaps. And then as it's making contact with the outside air and so on, it's beginning that curing process. So it's kind of reacting with that air to form, you know, initially just like this kind of thin or gel type look to it. And then it'll eventually cure into a a permanent fix, basically. 
it, it does sort of check out that the drying of the latex as it kind of reaches outside air would be pretty key to sort of making it all coagulate and actually form a solid seal on something. Along those lines, then, I'd be curious to hear you talk a bit more about how the stands standard and race sealants actually differ from each other, both in terms of their formulation in general terms, at least, and uh, more specifically, kind of how you look at who should be using which one. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So we're kind of getting at it there, but, you know, with sealant, there's a bit of a balance we're trying to strike. Uh, between longevity in the tire and the puncture protection. Of course, you know, in simple terms, a sealant that doesn't seal is worthless. So we focus on the puncture protection and, and longevity will vary based on uh, amount applied, thickness of the tire casing, um, environmental conditions, how hot it is, how often uh, you refresh, uh, those types of things all, all play into it. Um, so we are trying to strike that balance. And um, for years and years, we we were making a kind of a pro only race formula that we supplied to sponsored riders and uh, friends in the pits and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and they aren't as concerned with maintenance. Uh, they're changing tires every weekend. They're, you know, on top of everything that the bikes need and uh, was quite, quite good for them because uh, this, the race sealant essentially has uh, the same liquid base as our standard sealant, but has uh, considerably more particulate and larger particulate. So it's basically twice our normal particulate plus the larger particles for the bigger punctures. So if you're on a uh, you know, cross-country World Cup or, or your, you know, your A race for the season, uh, it's worth putting in race sealant because uh, you may not need to leave it in there for a long time. It may have more of a tendency to, to kind of snowball if you've seen the, the little balls of sealant form in a tire. Uh, but it will seal the bigger punctures and it carries that bigger particulate with it. So it cannot be injected through a valve stem. Uh, it will clog valves very easily. And, you know, they say stay on top of it for maintenance. Um, the standard sealant though is really what most people should be using on a daily basis and, uh, you know, works for pretty much anything we're going to encounter on the trail on a regular ride. Um, and is a little bit easier to work with and less maintenance. Uh, and if you're strictly a person that likes to apply sealant through a valve stem for, for ease or cleanliness, that's the product you want to use for that. Um, we, we sell that in, uh, you know, everything from a two ounce bottle to a 32 ounce bottle. And the two ounce bottles are perfect for the, say the road application or, uh, because you've got the spout on there that will fit directly into the valve stem. It's the right amount to put into a road tire. And I don't know if you've ever opened a road tire and tried to pour sealant in and then close the tire. It can create a little bit of a mess. So <laughs> far easier to use that standard sealant through the valve in those applications as well. have not dealt with road tubeless much personally, but I do actually tend to like using the um, little two ounce bottles through the valve stem, even if I'm actually pouring out of a, one of the big 32 ounces or whatever into a little bottle just to use that as an injector tool was great. It is interesting, though, that you said that the liquid formulation of the two is actually the same. And so do I have it right then that the basically the reason that the race sealant dries out a bit faster or doesn't last quite as long is just that the extra particulates mean that it is sort of coalescing around all of those particulates. And um, that is sort of what's driving it rather than any difference in the liquid itself. Right, right. So you have more 
particulates and larger particulates tumbling around and collecting latex along the way and so on and so forth. So it will start to coagulate in that sense and create those little structures. You know, we have all kinds of names for them, but this animal, as it's <laughs> often known, um, starts to form a little bit earlier and so on. And you want to, if you're ever doing the maintenance and so on, you want to make sure you pull those out. It's just coagulated latex and particulate and refresh with, with uh, new from the bottle. So the, sort of the main point is taking the little animals as you put them out would just be to so you don't have those sitting in there to continue to attract more right. latex and have it not last as long. We've all, we've all well, most of us have ro- rolled a snowball down the hill and, and wants to get a lot bigger and same idea. Yeah. Yep. So to sort of pull it back and look at sealant design in a little bit more general terms, then tell us a little bit more sort of about the big picture trade-offs that you make in formulating a sealant. So you, we've kind of touched on a lot of this already, but I am curious especially given what you just said about the liquid portion of the race and standard stuff actually being the same, what considerations go into the liquid portion of the formulation? I'd imagine you sort of have a trade-off between having something that seals well, but doesn't dry out super quickly. And then there are probably some things to think about in terms of preventing it from freezing, for example, too. And uh, maybe I'm missing some stuff. Also, what would you kind of describes the biggest trade-offs or considerations in that sort of design being. Oh, so in the earliest days, freezing was actually a big concern for us because uh, this was pre-fat bikes and so on. We would uh, put the biggest tires we could fit on our mountain bikes and being in southern tier of New York, it got cold, it got some snow on the ground and we would head up to some local snowmobile trails. They were always nice and packed in and ready to go and we would try and make our way through the woods on snowmobile trails. So freezing was always and is still an important consideration for us. Um, so that's, we don't have, you know, one formula for cold weather, one for warm weather and so on uh, at this point. So we, we make sure it works in a wide variety of conditions. Uh, I think negative 20 is where we've been down to. So I don't want to be out in that, but um, at least not on a bike. Uh, it will work for you though. Um, yeah, there are considerations we're talking about the longevity. So how, how quickly does it dry out? Uh, we do a, a quite a bit of testing around that to see, you know, what what additives and so on might give us some improvement there. But at the end of the day, we're, we want to make sure we're never giving up puncture protection. Um, so that is first and foremost, and, and based on you know how we were talking about the sealant actually working earlier, we have to get that sealant to the puncture site quickly. Um, so that flow rate is important. Um, so as it starts to dry, that becomes a factor, and uh, we want to make sure that that particulate can be delivered to the hole. So we don't want something that just sinks straight out and sticks to the tire casing, and you know, is not available when you need it. Um, so those are just kind of some of the things we're looking at and trying to balance to put the best product in the bottle that we can. Yeah, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that the trade-off between flowing to reach a hole in the first place and then actually sealing that hole well are pretty directly in conflict with each other. And so there's a fairly fine line to walk there. Over the you know 20-ish, 20-plus years that Stans has been around, how much has the formula changed over the years, out of curiosity? It's been tweaked a little bit along the way. So some of that is you know our, our own desire to improve things. So you know, competition is good and forces you to look at some things. And we're, we're always testing other product and making sure we're staying ahead. And, um, you know, we've been able to scale the production from the earliest days when there were literally you know one, two, three people pumping some ingredients out of a drum by hand to you know a full production line that uh, you know 
80 bottles a minute can come off of uh, you know, for filling two ounce. So it, it, it's, um, it's been some challenges along the way for sure, but the formulation itself has been pretty stable by and large. Uh, just just small tweaks, really. That's kind of what it had seemed like from my vantage of just using the stuff for a long time now. It, I hadn't, you know, you, you can have the case where you have slow evolution of something and you kind of don't notice because the changes are incremental. But I wouldn't have thought that it had changed a ton. It seems like it's been pretty consistent for a long time. Yeah. As of a few years ago, it's all made with solar power, but uh, beyond that, <laughs> it's the same, roughly the same stuff in the bottle. Right on. That's cool too. That's good. So to move on to the rim design itself part of the equation, you talked about this a little bit when we were talking about UST and bead float and whatnot, but I'd like to dig down a little deeper on that. So Stans has been one of the brands that was pushing um, on getting wider rims and shallower hookless bead seats for quite a while now. And you kind of talked some about the reasoning behind that, but let's talk about rim width in particular. So people who've been following mountain bikes are not going to be surprised to hear that rims have generally been trending wider for a while, though. It seems like that trend has kind of leveled off. We had a period where that was happening and have settled in on, 30 millimeters give or take being kind of the normal for trail bike enduro bike downhill bike sorts of things and some variation for different use cases but roughly in that window give or take a bit what was the original idea behind going wider on rims and how much did it sort of require it to be an incremental evolution for uh, tire designs to sort of keep pace and have everything matched up such that it all worked together well. Yeah, there's there's a lot of rim history there. So I remember the earliest days, you know, talking back to that UST uh, and, and what it had offered. Cross-country rims of the day were 17, 18 millimeters wide. And we came out with our first real models in that sense were, you know, 19 and 20. It's like, oh, those guys went kind of wide, didn't they? Uh, <laughs> we get a comment here and there. And, and we were always in support of uh, a little bit wider rim in that sense. Um, but the shorter sidewall uh, geometry that we'd adopted and, and later patented and so on uh, allowed the tire to take a more natural kind of curvature, less of the, the pinched light bulb, if you will. So you take your two beads and move them together. It makes that kind of bulbous shape with uh, a fairly unstable base, more or less. Um, so when we are able to shorten the sidewalls, then the tire starts to take more of a natural curve. It's departing from the rim a little bit earlier. And um, as we start to move those beads apart, you know, our earliest uh, Olympic rims and then the 355s and so on at 19, 20, 21 millimeters wide. Um, we're kind of going in that direction. And, you know, obviously things evolved beyond that. That was, you know, 2004, 2006 timeframe uh, into where we're at now with, you know, 30 kind of being a, a pretty good size for a lot of people. Um, we aren't running 1.8, 1.9 cross country tires either. We're running 2.35s, 2.4s, and so on whether it's trail or cross country, uh, much more common. So the width did have to come along and it has created challenges, both at like a, an international standard, standards level of what rim should we measure on, uh, what pressure should these things be rated for and all those kind of questions that, that come out of these, you know, evolutionary changes of rim and tire. But, um, you know, we were early to being slightly wider. Uh, we were winning World Cup downhills with a rim. The early flow rim was 22 and a half millimeters wide. <laughs> then it went to 25 and you know, now it's 30 basically. So 
um, yeah, just it, it's funny to think back to what wide was in the day and what wide is now. We went as far as we never did a full, you know, 80 or 100 fat bike rim, but we went to 50 as our widest. We did 32s and 35s, but it, it changed pretty quickly. People kind of came back and I, I say this about mountain bikes all the time, like plus tires came along, wide rims came along. We all tend to go a little bit too far and then have to back off. Like, wouldn't it be great if everything was huge? And Oh, wait, it doesn't fit through. My handlebars don't fit through trees and I can't get this tire to fit on my bike rack. And, you know, so we all kind of, you know, tend to push it too far and then uh, find that happy medium in there somewhere. On that note, why do you think Plus kind of didn't catch on? It had its little moment in the sun and then faded fairly quickly. There's still a few bikes around, but they're very much the uh, exception rather than the rule these days. Now I still see some on our local trails that are particularly rocky and, and so on, where it uh, can give you a little extra comfort when you get the pressure right and a little extra grip and and so on. But um, I think weight was a factor. It wasn't all that practical. Getting the pressure right, I found when I rode them to be a bit difficult. Small changes in, in tire pressure meant big changes in feel. And um, just getting those, those pressures right is a bit time consuming. Um, I think, uh, I think weight was a factor. I think clearance and frame, you know, fit was a factor and really the, you know, 2.4, 2.5 tire that we've, most people have settled on right now, uh, is really good. The rubber compounds are good. Tire constructions come a long way. Um, so I think we're getting all the advantages of a, a plus, you know, what plus was trying to bring to the table, um, in something that's a little bit easier to manufacture, a little bit easier to fit. You know, geometry wise and just gives everybody a good experience. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree. And one of the complaints I always had with plus stuff too, is that it felt like companies were trying to make these bigger diameter, bigger width tires, but then didn't really want them to weigh more than a more conventionally sized counterpart. And so you ended up with a lot of really flimsy constructions that didn't hold up very well and kind of were felt squirmy and corners and stuff especially if you didn't have your pressure just right and uh they didn't didn't really ever pan out for me either i was never too fond of them but which is curious to hear your take sounds like we're pretty broadly on the same page there for another bit of just sort of miscellaneous tire tech i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on tubeless inserts and their place in the whole ecosystem i know stance doesn't make them but um I'm sure you guys have thought about them a fair bit and just in terms of how they interact with the systems you're making and so on. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we don't currently produce an insert. Um, you know, we do look at them because we're, we're always interested and we try to maintain good relationships with the other tire manufacturers and so on so that we understand kind of how things fit together and, you know, being um, kind of the tubeless people from day one we get all sorts of phone calls and email questions and so on about tire fit and should I use an insert? Does it work on your rim and those sorts of things. So I think in general where we're at with inserts right now, um, I think it's, it's pretty good in that it's a modular approach. You like an insert, use an insert. You don't like it. You don't have to run a tire that's overbuilt for you. Um, they, uh, they do introduce a couple of questions and things we're always trying to look at and solve. Um, you know, the certain inserts will block the flow of sealant. You know, not that they absorb it or whatever, whatever the case may be, but if an insert presses tightly against the sidewalls and you manage to cut the sidewall in that region, how do you get sealant into that puncture area? 
chances are you don't, and that's why they can ride those, you know, inserts when they're flat. Um, <laughs> it tends to, to work out. Um, others may, may cause other problems with collecting sealant in various voids. Uh, it's not absorbing into the structure, but it will capture sealant. Uh, and then you've got from a rim side kind of fit and, and things to think about how do you mount the tires and get things on there effectively. Uh, we have seen some inserts through the years in whether it was some of our own testing or with, uh, you know, the teams that maybe we, we co-sponsor with a, an insert provider or what have you, or they're, they're using them on their own that certain rims and impacts are maybe even worse with an insert in place. Um, it, it affects the rim structure differently. So uh, you might see a rim flat spot easier if it's using a particular insert. Um, I don't think they're on the market anymore, but Procore was one in its early days. It was one of the earlier inserts that had the separate inflatable chamber. That put a lot of compressive force on the rims, which drastically lowered spoke tension and introduced some new variables for us to think about. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot to it. I think they are, like I say, in general, a good thing in that you can take this modular approach, run one in the back and not the front, or use them on certain days at the bike park, but not on your everyday trail rides. You know, that sort of thing um, gives you some options. Um, I've, I've said it before, and I'd probably get called out if I don't mention it, but in some ways they're a Band-Aid to better rims and tires. Uh, I think I think we can do better on rims and wheels to avoid some of the things that you're trying to handle with inserts. And I think tire construction has, you know, a lot. It's come a long way, but there's still a long way it can go that could lead to not needing some of the inserts, or maybe maybe allowing a lighter insert or a different design to the insert itself. I am fully in agreement with all of that, and that segued perfectly into what I was going to ask next, which is. Basically, tubeless systems have improved immensely over the years, like we've been talking about. And there's been a lot of evolution and a lot of development that's gone into them. Things work hugely better than they did back in the day. And a lot of the stuff with figuring out tire profiles and rim design and stuff has contributed hugely to that. But tubeless tires are still, frankly, one of the more common failure points on modern mountain bikes. And it does seem like there is for sure room for further improvement on that front. And so... I wanted to hear your sort of take on it would obviously require some pretty complex coordination between rim and tire companies and all the rest. But what might a totally reimagined system look like? Or do you think there's a possibility for that? Or is it going to be more a case that we're just going to see further refinement of conceptually similar systems and a totally out in left field full rethink isn't? really likely to come about? Uh, well, I would say we, we sort of upset the Apple cart a little bit and didn't follow that USC model and kind of went our own way with the, the patented geometry and everything. And like I say, others have, have come along in that direction, maybe not fully. And the international standards have been under revision for a couple of years and we've been involved in that process. So the, the ISO wants to put out the new standards and, and there is something available on rims right now. Um, but it's not a requirement yet as far as a complete bike meeting all of these things. We get some time to ramp up to it. In that sense, it took a long time to get it revised and uh, it was pretty pretty well overdue. But that standard itself doesn't allow for this sort of experimentation that would be fully compliant. The European side of things has some room to play there. Uh, so a complete rethink top to bottom, I'm not 
sure that would happen. Um, I have a crazy sketch up on my whiteboard right now that uh, I don't know if it would work, but it would be a complete rethink of things. You know, where we're at now and where things will, will be in the next couple of years is very much in line sort of with the automotive approach or the motorcycle approach where we're getting some stability to rim and tire. It's not perfect, don't get me wrong. There's a number of questions we still have and others have about how this is going to work and what will be um, the future for that. But those systems on cars and motorcycles have been around a really long time without a lot of evolution. And they're not perfect either. There are some some things that still could be improved in those worlds. But the, bi- the bicycle side has approached that that point. So I don't know that there will be a big shakeup. Uh, if it did, it would be a be pretty interesting. I think there are things that could be done, but I don't know if it would be widespread. Is there anything more you can elaborate on with that point about upcoming kind of improvements in stability, or are we just going to have to wait and see on that one? Uh, I'd say it's a wait and see. I mean, I could get real nerdy and talk, you know, dimensions and tolerances of rims. And, you know, if we have made some good improvements and everybody's sort of on board from a tire rim manufacturing standpoint about how we should be measuring complete wheels and not talking about rim dimensions because of spoke compression and so on, or we should be ensuring that we measure the wheel with the ceiling mechanism in place, in our case, tape, or, you know, for a lot of people, it's tape. That needs to be part of the calculation. Um, but the way those standards work and so on is you need to find the, the rim and wheel and then say, okay, tire makers, you do what you want to make it fit. We just all have to pass this test at the end. So there will still be some variability and, and things of that nature. Um, but I think over time, you know, next few years, it will come much more quickly to, a, you know, this tire fits equally well on every rim and wheel that's out there as long as people are, you know, following the letter of the standard and so on. That all makes sense. And before people freak out, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you're talking about just defining how rim and tire manufacturers define the exact sort of dimensions for the bead seat and all of this kind of thing, rather than actually new standards for tire or wheel sizes, right? It's going to be things that are right, right, right. <laughs> still compatible, but just refining the way that the dimensions sort of get handed back and forth between the different manufacturers so that everything fits just a little bit better. Yeah. Now we've all, everybody's seen a 36 inch mountain bike, probably at this point, some handmade bike show item or, or unique one-off. Um, we've rolled some 32 inch rims before, but I've never ridden them. I don't really think we need to go there, but you know, we, we make everything from a 20 inch to a, a 29 inch, so 20, 24, 26, 27, 5, 29. And that's enough for me. So hopefully there's nothing new coming there. Um, yeah, that seems like plenty. I think we're good. Can leave that one alone. <laughs> Hope so. Can let uh, just mixing and matching do have mullets be the, the new way to mess around sure, with wheel sure. sizes for a little bit. I think that's that's plenty. Hope so. Well, Mike, this has been super interesting and I think a pretty good sort of insight into tubeless tires and all that. Before I let you go, though, podcast is called Bikes and Big Ideas. After all, do you have a big idea to share with everybody? Oh, I knew you'd ask. I, I'm I'm always put on the uh, the spot for something profound. I, I don't know that I'm a profound kind of person, but you know, there's two things that that I kind of think about a lot. Um, you know, what we do with sealant and so on. Uh, I don't stay up at night thinking about this, but you know, ten years down the line, you know, maybe we don't need sealant. What does that look like? Um, 
are they airless tires that actually ride nice? Uh, I, I say this as, well, if we don't figure it out, it'll probably put us out of business. But um, those are things that I think about because sealant's good. Uh, it really does the job right now. Uh, but we're all going bigger, faster, et cetera. We all want to you know, experience a day without a flat tire and so on. Is sealant part of that? Sure, for now. Um, but what's that look like? 10, 15 years down the line with new materials and you know the the tweels and things that have been out there for years for automotive type applications have never made it to the world. There was the, the NASA based tire recently, right? So what does that look like? And um, yeah, I think the other opportunity for the industry at this point, we we're all thinking about it. Um, you know, the last interesting 18, 20 months or so, uh, there's a supply chain challenges and, and shops out of product and so on and so forth is, uh, you know, a lot of new riders coming into the world. Uh, we want to keep them around. So, you know, supporting the advocacy groups and being involved locally and getting out and helping people learn about riding and, you know, proper trail etiquette and what it's like to be sustainable. So long, long way of saying we need to execute on a lot of these ideas. Everybody has maybe the big idea, but it's the execution that's going to make the difference. So how do we, how do we keep people interested, keep them involved and basically, you know, go out and start doing something, you know, um, and not just kind of sit back with the idea. We, you know, those of us that want to see the industry flourish and more people ride bikes uh, need to be out there and involved. So I'll, I'll give a plug for our connection program and trying to get people involved at a local level. And we're making donations to trail groups and things that people can nominate. And, um, you know, I'd like to see more people out there riding and people stick with it that, you know, either rediscovered it last year or found cycling for the first time. A whole lot in there. That was pretty good. Packing it in. <laughs> Well, Mike, thanks again. Really appreciate you coming on. And this has been a really informative one. So thank you. Yeah, great. Appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you enjoyed this conversation, then please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Mike for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.